Okay, good morning. Good morning. Let me get somewhere where I can see that and see my notes. That's fantastic. So, uh, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, now, they, that may not excite you. You may think, oh no, what have we come to uh, today? Uh, this morning is going to be a little bit different um, because we're not directly opening up the Bible. We're not directly looking at the stories of, of Jesus. So again, you might say, well, well why do that? Uh, history isn't really my subject. Uh, church history isn't my subject. Uh, but the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, or the Reformation, is a really important event in history. It's what makes us the church that we are. If you've ever thought, yeah, why are we who we are? Why do we do what we do? Why do we behave in the way we behave? Well, the answer to that question lies in the events that happened 500 uh, years ago. So over the next uh, six weeks, uh, we're going to be teaching on some of the truths that were landed through the Reformation. There are five key truths. That's how we got five weeks after this week. But what I really wanted to do as way of an introduction is to kind of tell you why we're even doing those five weeks. It began the, what is the Reformation? What was it all about? And it's an enormous uh, saga, so I have to be aware I have barely 30 minutes. It's an enormous saga. Um, so we're going to look at it through really focusing in on the one person that people most think of when they think of the Reformation, and that is Martin Luther. We're going to look at the life of Martin Luther and through the life of, uh, of Luther explain what the Reformation was, what was it all about. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and share your truths about this, uh, this remarkable man uh, and these remarkable events. Lord, pray you just bless us and encourage us uh, as we look at this. So, um, Martin Luther was born in uh, 1483 to Hans and Magretta Luder. He would, in uh, later life, uh, say that he was from a peasant background. Um, that, that's not strictly true. Uh, his father was a copper miner. His mother came from a merchant background. So they weren't exactly rich. They weren't exactly nobility. Um, but neither were they poor. They were kind of the middle-of-the-road guys. In fact, uh, Luther had uh, a very good education. He went to school in Erfurt, which is in Saxony, part of modern-day Germany. Um, and at the age of uh, 19, in 1501, he actually went to university to study law. Uh, in those days, there were kind of uh, three careers you could follow. You could become a lawyer, uh, you could become a doctor, uh, or you could kind of become a priest. Uh, but for now, Luther's career path is set on law and becoming a lawyer. Well, all of that changed dramatically. Uh, one evening uh, during 1505, uh, Luther is caught in a ferocious thunderstorm as he's walking home from college. He's walking home from college one night, uh, and this, this lightning is coming down. There's thunder rolling all around him. He's, he's kind of thrown to, to the ground, uh, such as the ferocity of this storm. Uh, and he cries out to uh, St. Anna that if she will save his life, he will devote himself to God's service. Well, the storm abates. Uh, Luther gets up, dusts himself off, finds that he's actually uh, still alive. And so remaining true to his word, he promptly uh, quits university, sells his law books, 
and enters the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, becomes a monk. Now, forget about all the kind of friar tuck caricatures you have of monks as uh, fat, beer-swilling guys. Um, uh, The Augustinian uh, order of monks was the strictest order. This was the strictest sort of monk that you could be. Uh, and, and so Luther devotes himself to prayer uh, and to confession uh, and to really doing everything he possibly can uh, to get right with God. However, uh, in the monastery, Luther doesn't find any peace. He doesn't find the sort of comfort. He doesn't find uh, God. He's tormented with the idea that all men, all women, everyone are just hopeless sinners and they're permanently and forever separated from God. There's actually a truth there, but this is the kind of thing that's just weighing Luther down. He's been reading uh, Romans, in particular he's been reading Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, where it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, And Luther's pondering this great question, what does it mean the righteous will live by faith? He's asking the question, how can I be righteous? How can I get myself right before God? And and he's actually angry at God because he he sees God as just saying, I'm this perfect holy being, I'm right, I'm holy, this is what you've got to be like. And Luther says, we can't do that. We get things wrong, we fail, we sin. How can I make myself right before God? And he's praying constantly, he's, he's confessing. He confesses for hours, on, days on end, to the most trivial of offences. Uh, he actually wears out his confessor, uh, a father Stalpowitz, who kind of says to him, look, if, actually, if you're going to bore me to death with your, your confessions, at least find something to do that's worth confessing to. <laughs> uh, because Luther just bore him, sitting in this little box, just hearing Luther day after day, saying, oh yeah, I had this bad thought, I had that bad thought. And Luther just tormented that he cannot get right with God. In fact, Luther says, he says, um, he says my situation was that although an impeccable monk... I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. So he's kind of doing everything he can, uh, and it's not working. And actually, in the end, Father Stalpowitz, he kind of realises that this monastic life is, is not kind of doing Luther any good. And so he takes him aside and says, actually, you need to go back to university. You need to start to study the Bible, And he also says to him, you actually need to pick up a role of being a pastor and a teacher. You need to start telling other people about Jesus, which is a wonderful irony, because this guy who's got so many doubts about his own salvation and his own worth before God is now being told, you've got to go and tell other people about God and pastor them. And of course, Luther says, I'm not going to do this. He he objects, uh, but eventually he concedes. He he goes back to university uh, and actually he gets uh, degrees in uh, 1508, uh, 1509, he's a clever chap, uh, and in 1512 he actually gets a degree in theology and starts teaching at the University uh, of Wittenberg. So he's, he's kind of doing, doing the stuff at the same time. He hasn't left 
the Augustinian order. He's still a monk, and he's actually rising up through the ranks, such that ultimately he becomes responsible for 11 monasteries in that area. He actually gets the title of, uh, let me find it, um, Vicar of uh, Thuringia and Saxony. Um, and it's important for what comes next to realise that, that Luther is actually part of the established church. He's a well-respected guy. He's rising up uh, through the ranks. But he's, but he's still got his doubts about how he can stand rightly before God. How can God just forgive and ignore all this sin? It just torments Luther. He can't find peace. Uh, during this time, he, uh, he, he goes to Rome. Uh, there's a dispute that has uh, risen in his Augustinian uh, order that needs settlement by the Pope. And it's a great honour for Luther to be chosen to represent his order uh, at Rome. However, when he gets to Rome, he's, uh, he's shocked by the poor performance of, of the priests who just seem to be content to say anything really in the services and just to kind of get through as many services as they can and get through as many people as they can. Luther's shocked by the kind of poor performance that they do. He's, he's shocked by the uh, excessive lifestyle of Pope Leo X, who just seems to live in this palatial palace, totally divorced from the ordinary people. He says, you know, how, how can that be? Uh, and so Luther's really shocked by what he finds in Rome. Now, now, in Rome, there is the opportunity, because the other thing that all monks and all nuns and all, pe all people like that should do, you, you want to go on a pilgrimage. And there's no greater pilgrimage than in Rome, there's a place called the Sala Scanta, which were 28 marble steps that legend has were part of Pilate's palace in Rome. This was the steps that Jesus himself walked up to stand trial before Pilate. And they were, again, so legend has it, brought to Rome in the 4th century by St. Helena. And for good Catholics, there's no better pilgrimage than to climb these steps on hands and knees and at every step to pause and give a prayer. It's meant to bring peace and assurance, which is exactly what Luther wants. So while he's in Rome sorting out this dispute that's arisen with the Augustinian monks and the Pope, he, he takes a kind of a day trip out to kind of do this. And he climbs these steps, says a prayer, climbs these steps, says a prayer, meant to find peace and assurance at the top. And when he gets there, legend has that his thoughts or his words were, well, is it really so? He's kind of just not found this peace. And, you know, the priests in Rome may be guilty of levity, the Pope of lechery, but if the church itself can't bring peace and assurance, Luther starts to wonder, what is this all about? Am I even doing the right sort of thing? Luther's at a low point uh, in his life. But that all changes. We don't quite know when. Somewhere between 1511 and 1513, Luther has this great revelation. He suddenly realises that there is a difference between the law and the gospel. And the law is what says, you have to be right. That's what he's, he's so far seen as God is just thrusting under his nose saying, you have to be perfect, you have to be right. And Luther's rightly saying, I can't do that. 
And he sees this difference between the law and the gospel. And he says, I understand that the law doesn't condemn us, but the law drives us to the gospel where we find peace, where we find that God has given us his righteousness. He says uh, in his own words, he says, uh, then I began to understand uh, that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. It's not something he's got to do, it's something that's given to him. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the righteousness which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then Luther says, here I felt altogether born again, as though I had entered paradise through open gates. And and Luther is suddenly realising and suddenly forming this most fundamental truth, that we are saved by faith alone. Sola fide, to give it its Latin name. And over the following five weeks, we'll be looking at these five solas, as they are called, the five truths that are at the heart of the Reformation. But faith alone, sola fide, is this idea that I cannot get right with God. There's nothing that I can do in myself to make myself good enough to be accepted by God. Can't try, can't do it, can't be the best possible monk. I'm going to fall short of God's standard but God gives me his righteousness through my faith in him. Again, we're going to take a whole Sunday to unpack this idea, but this was one of the ideas that suddenly uh, Luther realised, suddenly made him come alive. Um, And as a teacher and a pastor, Luther starts to preach through Psalms and Romans uh, with a new perspective. He continues to uh, open this up, that the guy that had been a monk, that had tried to do it in his own strength, suddenly realises it is God's strength that makes this all come alive. Uh, And as he does this, he starts to kind of question some of the other practices that are going on in the church. Uh, One of the ones that that most concerned Luther was, was the practice of what's called indulgences. Now, what happened with indulgences was the Catholic Church believed that, that when you die, you kind of go to this halfway house called purgatory, this kind of holding area where any remaining sin in you has got to be cleansed. And it doesn't sound like a terribly good place, so we kind of want to make the time in purgatory as short as possible. This is, again, in case I don't mislead anybody, this isn't scriptural, this isn't what we're talking about today. This is from a mistranslation in a number of Hebrew texts, but this is what the Catholic Church believed at the time. And so to shorten that time you, you spent in purgatory... You you needed to have people praying for you. And even better, you needed to have people giving money to the church, buying a prayer. And that would shorten their time in purgatory. Now, now that's actually scandalous. Imagine this morning at the end, if we said, does anybody need to come forward for prayer? And when you all flocked forward and we got the elders and guys around you, we said, well, do you know what? Let me be perfectly honest with you. The degree to which your prayer is answered kind of depends on how much you stick in the offering. That's scandalous, isn't it? That's not right. And so Luther is, is just concerned about this, this idea of indulgences. He's, he's concerned that because he's a pastor. He's concerned that his flock can't afford this. 
He's concerned that it's actually wrong teaching, that people will start to believe that they can just buy forgiveness rather than actually genuinely being sorry. And so, uh, and one of the great guys that was doing this was a guy called uh, Johann Tetzel. He, he used to ride into town with a big offering box and uh, uh, he had this catchy little rhyme that as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, if, they had, if they had Twitter back in those days, that would just be, that would go viral. Um, and, and the thing is, this, this thing isn't just going on in the background. It's spiralling out of control. You see, the Pope needs money for a big building programme. He's got St Paul's Cathedral in Rome that he needs to build. So people are kind of dispatched all across the Holy Roman Empire to kind of raise money by any means, pretty much fair or foul. And Luther's seeing this and he's saying, oh, this isn't right. And so it comes to a head in October 1517. Actually, October the 31st. 1517, 500 years ago, minus 30 days, or plus 30 days, however you want to count it. October the 31st, 1517, and Luther writes out a list of things that he's annoyed about, and he manages to get 95 points. Aren't you good we're not doing a 95-week series on the Reformation, taking Luther's theses one at a time? They're actually pretty boring, to be honest, when you look at them. He kind of repeats himself a bit. But nevertheless, he's got 95 things. He writes them out, and he nails them to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now, that sounds a bit extravagant, but that was actually the medieval equivalent of Facebook. That was how you posted something and engaged people in a debate. You said, look, I've got this problem. I'd really like folks to comment on this. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? And Luther's part of the establishment. He does the right thing. He, he CCs his bishop in, Albert of Mainz. He sends him a copy as well, just so the bishop knows what's going on. Now, the thing to remember here is Luther wrote his thesis out in Latin. This was the official language of the church. Not everybody spoke Latin. And so what he's kind of saying, he's saying that... Um, I want the church to have a debate about this, but it's kind of confidential. It's within church walls only. Yeah, it's in Latin. The problem then happened, as indeed happens with Facebook, when you post that innocent tweet or that innocent photo and it suddenly goes viral. See, what happened, a number of people that also had a bit of an axe to grind against the Catholic Church seized on these theses. They translated them into German, which was the common language, and promptly distributed them all across the kind of Europe. Suddenly, Luther is in the crosshairs of the church. This, this has gone viral. People have, people have got to make some sort of official response to this. What's the Pope going to say? Uh, by the way, um, Albert of Mainz, uh, Luther's bishop, uh, he did the same thing. He totally ignored Luther's email. He just forwarded it on to Rome and said, you guys sort it out. So, so he wasn't a lot of help for, for Luther either. So, so Luther's kind of in the crosshairs. Pope Leo X has to respond. History has it that he didn't actually respond terribly quickly. His first response apparently was um, something along the lines of, uh, Luther's just a drunk German. He'll feel better when he sobers up. Interesting thing for the Pope to say. Um, but nevertheless, over a period of time, uh, a number of kind of 
papal envoys, sort of theologians, are kind of dispatched to kind of try to get Luther back on message. Uh, and, and Luther being the kind of brusque bo- bloke he is, that doesn't kind of get anywhere. So one after another are kind of dispatched with their tails between their legs, and here's Luther kind of uh, sticking to his guns. Um, eventually, however, uh, the, the theologian uh, Sylvester Mazzolini drafts a heresy charge against Luther. Things have come to that head. Luther's saying things which the church doesn't agree with, so there's this charge of heresy drafted against Luther. And he's summoned to Rome to answer these charges. And now comes one of those remarkable coincidences that everybody in history will say, oh, isn't that an interesting coincidence? And we see as God's hand on the matter. Because Luther, very fortunately, has a very influential patron, Prince Frederick III of Saxony, And uh, because of all some of the political machinations that are going on in Europe at the time, the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, the governor if you like, they don't want to upset certain German princes, including Frederick III. So Frederick argues that Luther shouldn't actually be tried at Rome, he ought to be tried far more locally. And the kind of Pope caves in, and so Luther only has to go to a place called Augsburg, which is kind of in Germany itself. And so in October 1518, Luther appears in Augsburg to debate with the the papal representative, uh, Cardinal Catalan. And uh, the kind of debate, it spirals out of control because Luther is not one to get involved in genteel debate. He's brusque, he's rude, uh, he's abrupt, uh, and, and this is not going in a good way, and and the cardinal's about to say, yeah, kind of, you're you're out, you've committed heresy. But then again, suddenly, it's just bizarre how this happens. Catalan realises, after all this, he can't accuse Luther of heresy, because you can only be accused of heresy if you've gone against something that's actually written into church law. And indulgences have never been written into church law. Everybody's been having such fun with this money-making scheme, nobody's actually thought to ever document it. And you can't accuse somebody of something that isn't actually written. So so Luther kind of dodges the bullet for now, and the the church quickly rush out this kind of uh, indulgence addendum that says actually they're okay. Uh, It's called a papal bull. Uh, Bulla is the Latin for bulletin, So papal from the church. It's kind of a church bulletin. It's an add-on to their newsletter that says, guess what, guys, we hadn't said this before, but indulgences are okay. Um, But so Luther's kind of got away with it. He's escaped from this uh, debate. However, um, certain people aren't going to let Luther off so lightly, Uh, particularly a guy called uh, Johann Eck, uh, who's kind of got a thing about Luther. And so very subtly, in 15... 19, he invites a colleague of Luther's, a guy called Andreas Kalstart, to come and have a talk about all this stuff that Luther's been suggesting and proposing and arguing about. Doesn't, doesn't get Luther involved, he gets Kalstart involved. And of course he opens it up and says, well, if anybody else wants to come along and join him, please do. Now, Eck never wanted to debate with Kalstart. He was after a bigger scalp, i.e. Luther's. 
And Luther, being the bloke he was, he wasn't going to uh, ignore this opportunity. So he rocks up at Leipzig as well and starts to argue with Eck. And again, this is a furious debate that goes back and forth about whether indulgences are right or wrong. Uh, and what even has, starts to happen now is Luther says he's not sure that the Pope is infallible. Now, this is another key teaching of the church. Imagine for a moment, if, have you got your Bible with you? Can you just wave your Bible in the air? Thank you. Uh, I'm going to collect those all up at the end <laughs> because I don't want you reading your Bibles anymore. The elders in the church here are going to tell you what the Bible means, okay? You, you don't need to look at Scripture to do that. The, the, the elders here will tell you. Okay? And if you've got any problems with it, come to them and they'll tell you. Scandalous, isn't it? And so what happened in the Catholic Church was the Pope was the one that said, this is how things are. And Luther's saying, I don't actually think that's right. I think anybody can open up the Bible and find a truth in there. That's sola scriptura, one of the other solas that we'll look at in the coming weeks. By scripture alone is truth determined, not by what the Pope says. And so kind of Luther's taking everything that the church kind of stands for and he's having a kind of a, a, a right go at it. Uh, and Eck's getting more and more kind of frustrated. Uh, and Eck really starts to kind of see Luther as, as an enemy now. Now, the, again, the only reason that Luther gets away with this is that he's got this influential patron, Frederick III, and nobody at the moment is going to kind of upset uh, him. Again, it's just another of these amazing coincidences. The, the, the Holy Roman Empire, kind of what was most of Europe at this time, is, is governed by the Holy Roman Emperor, who kind of traces his ancestry back to the Roman emperors, and the Pope. And kind of the Pope's the religious wing, and the Holy Roman Emperor is the kind of political wing, but they hold the whole thing together. Uh, and what's happened is Maximilian I, who's the Holy Roman Emperor, he's died, and we need to have a new Holy Roman Emperor. It's a bit like when you dissolve the government. You know, nothing gets decided until the new government's voted in. So we need a new Holy Roman Emperor. And all the good money is on Frederick III of Saxony to be the new Holy Roman Emperor, Luther's patron. So nobody's going to sort of say anything about Luther until this one gets sorted out. You're not going to offend a potential future emperor. Frederick, for reasons unknown, decides he doesn't want the job. So it takes even longer to sort it out because you end up then with a guy called Charles V becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. But he's a Spaniard. Ooh, have we got any Spaniards in the room? And for, again, for other reasons unknown, he's got a whole load of stuff that he needs to sort out. In, sorry, guys, over there. He's got a whole load of stuff that he needs to sort out in Spain before he can pick up the reins of being Holy Roman Emperor. So there's this great interregnum, which again is God's provision because it allows Luther to keep preaching and keep teaching and keep sharing his views. However, in June of 1520, the Pope's patience runs out. He's had enough, and he issues another papal bull, another church bulletin. This one is called Exergo Domine. They all had wonderful titles. Uh, our church newsletters probably don't have that, but it says, Let God Arise. Uh, and it starts off with the wonderful phrase, Let God Arise. And you think, oh, I was going to say good here. And then it's just a load of pages about condemning Luther. But, but Exergo Domine condemns Luther as a heretic, says that his works need to be burned, 
that he's out of the, the, the church. We're not going to have uh, anything to do with him. Uh, and so this, this bull is, detached, uh, is, is dispatched that says that. Gives Luther actually 60 days to recant and change his mind. Doesn't get to Luther in 60 days because it has to do the tour all around Europe and be read out in loads and loads of towns. And so by the time Luther actually officially gets it, probably about four or five months have passed. Now, Luther's reaction is, is pretty obvious, given the guy that he is. Uh, he promptly burns the papal bull in public. He kind of says, if the Pope's going to say, my stuff should be burned, guess what, I'm going to burn the Pope's. And so he has this kind of public burning of the papal bull. Well, the inevitable happens. Luther is excommunicated a couple of months later. He's thrown out of the, the church. Uh, his views haven't gone away, though. So he is now formally summoned to give an account of his uh, views and to now stand, well, to debate them. Historians are actually divided on whether he was actually on trial or whether he was asked to debate this. Um, but Charles V is now established as the emperor. Uh, and as all good emperors do, you have a yearly conference where you debate church issues. Wouldn't it be interesting if our prime minister had to have a yearly debate to discuss pertinent church issues? Anyway, Charles V has to do his duty and he convenes what's called the Diet of Worms. Now, that's not an odd bush trucker trial, can't even say it, but diet is kind of Latin for, for discussion. So it's a discussion at the city of Worms. So the Diet of Worms is where everybody convenes to discuss church matters, and Luther in his theology are right in the crosshairs. And Johann Eck, who's been so upset with Luther in the past, he's now prepared and ready for this debate. Uh, and he actually has all of uh, Luther's uh, writings piled up on a table. Um, Luther, by the way, has been a prodigious writer. He has written extraordinarily um, big amounts of stuff. Some of it, actually, if we read today, we say, actually, I don't quite agree with that. There was some good stuff there and not so good stuff there. But anyway, his stuff is all piled up. Uh, and X says, do you stand by this? Do you stand by all your writings? Well, Luther has taken by now a pop at just about everything the church held sacred. Catholic Church has what was called seven sacraments, seven things that are really important to them. Luther says, I can only see two in Scripture. I can only see two. Baptism, and isn't it important that we're talking about baptisms uh, in a couple of weeks' time? Luther says, yeah, big tick. Adult baptism, believer's baptism, not, by the way, child-infant baptism that the church seemed to do, but baptism, I can see that one, and I can see communion. I can see those in Scripture. But all these other things that you think are important, I can't see. Holy orders. Luther's been a monk, but he says, I'm not sure where I find that in Scripture. People sealing themselves off from the world. Um, uh, what else does he... Um, um, confession. Luther spent hours and days confessing, but he says, actually, when I look at Scripture, I can't find a great scriptural truth for that. Um, marriage. Now, marriage is important, and don't get me wrong on that one, um, but the church held marriage as a sacrament, which says, actually, it's a means of getting God's grace. And Luther says, no, marriage is important, but it's not, not a sacrament. And so he's kind of had a pop at most things. And so X says to him, do you stand by all of this? Uh, and Luther says, unless 
I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, that's a brave thing to say, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, that's an even braver thing to say, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And legend has it almost also that Luther famously declared, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God, amen. It's a great point in history. And Luther has now publicly affirmed that the Pope isn't infallible, that indulgences are wrong. Pretty much this great big list of all the things the church does, Luther has publicly stood up and said, no, I kind of don't think that's right. Luther leaves worms, or worms. His arrest and trial, kind of mere formalities now. But on the road back to Wittenberg, in the dead of night, Luther is suddenly set upon by masked horsemen and abducted. Do I hear an ooh? <laughs> is this the Pope trying to do in with this guy? Is this the Emperor deciding to, to, to get rid of him? Actually, it's neither. What has actually happened is, again, Frederick III has rode onto the scene, seen that his protégé is in danger, and has effectively taken him into protective custody. And Luther is taken to the Wartburg Castle, where he spends the next year in hiding. He actually has a price on his head. The Catholic Church have declared him a heretic, they've said, your writings need to be banned, and they've actually put a price on his head. But Luther is in hiding. And while he's in hiding, uh, again, he does some writing. He, he, translates the, uh, uh, the Bible, he translates the New Testament into German, uh, as well as doing uh, a whole load of other writings. In his absence, however, his reforms haven't gone away. See, remarkable things are happening now that Luther's writings and truths are spreading across Germany and across Europe. On Christmas Eve, 1521, uh, Andreas Kallstart, remember Kallstart from the Leipzig debate? Uh, Kallstart held a church service, again, in Wittenberg, a town with a population of 2,500, and 2,000 came to that Christmas Eve service. Now imagine if Crawley, with 100,000 people, 70,000, 80,000 people decided to go to church. Kallstart holds this service, he doesn't officiate in the normal ornate robes that a priest would wear. He wears a simple black robe. He says a very brief message in Latin because very few people can read or understand Latin. And then he switches to German, the language of the people, and takes communion. And 2,000 people, for the first time in their lives, hear the words, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. They hear that in their own language. And rather than coming up and the priest just giving them uh, a wafer, something very formal, Kalstart asks them to come forward and to break the bread. And one person is trembling so much that he drops it. 
the body of Christ on the floor. Cal Stark says, it's okay, take another piece. Do you see how remarkable that is and how similar that is to what we do this today with communion? This is where this comes from. This is where these church practices come from. And so Calstock has this remarkable uh, church service. Uh, Mr. Slide, I'm so excited by this story, but I uh, couldn't find many pictures of Luther getting abducted. I kind of think there might be some nice kind of paintings, but there aren't. There's just some strange kind of woodcut of, of Luther being addressed, adjust, uh, arrested or abducted uh, in the middle uh, of the night. But anyway... Um, but for all the good reforms that are going on with Calstart, there's some not-so-good changes happening. Because, again, we've talked to get about the church, we've talked against the church, and people are now rising up. They're kind of smashing idols in churches, they're, they're, they're rioting against the Catholic Church. So Luther kind of comes out of hiding uh, and preaches a couple of sermons about peace and manages to restore peace. It's, again, it's kind of interesting that even though there's a price on his head, Miraculously, Luther is able to get away uh, and do that and to preach peace. Uh, but the radical face of Reformation hasn't gone away. Uh, and so now onto the scene comes a guy called Thomas Munster, uh, a very radical reformer. Uh, he was with Luther some years ago, um, but he actually doesn't think Luther's reforms go anywhere near enough. He kind of thinks the end of the world is near. He thinks that the peasants need to rise up uh, against the corrupt Catholic Church and burn the churches and overthrow the Pope. And he's kind of uh, advocating uh, revolution and revolt, none of which is what Luther uh, wanted. Um, but all of this comes to a head uh, in the Battle of Frankenhausen in 1525. It's one of the most one-sided battles in all of history. This is just amazing. You see, on one side, you have some uh, 5,000, 10,000 peasants. They're just armed with pitchforks and flails. They just want to kind of go back to their farms. But they've been incited to, to revolt by Munster. Uh, Philip of Hesse, he's the kind of ruler of the region. He sends in the troops. Uh, and the troops that he sends in, by the way, are well-trained mercenaries heavily armoured knights, even early artillery. This is a one-sided battle. And at the end of the Battle of Frankenhausen, some 5,000 peasants lie dead. The losses on Philip's side were six. And two of them were only wounded. Munster is captured, uh, tortured and executed, so ending the peasants' revolt of 1521, uh, 1525. Uh, it's one of those remarkable events in history. None of it was what Luther uh, wanted. None of it was what Luther was advocating. And the Reformer, and really as we move on, I'm just looking at the time, and so much still to do, but we'll finish in a couple of minutes. Um, for all that happened with the Reformation in Germany, the same thing was going on in Switzerland. Remember, the Reformation happened kind of independently. And just what Luther had done in Germany, uh, a guy called Ulrich Zwingli was doing in Switzerland. Uh, and these two get together to try and have a common ground because they've been working independently. They, they both disagree with the Catholic Church, but there's also a number of things that they disagree about as well. And, and actually, there's about 15 things that they disagree about. So they, they come together 
uh, in something called the Marburg Colloquy. I don't know why we can't just call it a chat down Starbucks, but it's called the Marburg Colloquy. Uh, and of these 15 things that they dis disagree about, they end up agreeing on all but one of them. The one thing they can't agree on is what happens in communion, what happens at the Lord's Supper. Because Luther is still, if you like, a, a, a priest. Uh, uh, he's still got links to the Catholic Church. He very much believes that the Lord's body is present in the bread. The Lord, the Lord is present in the bread and the wine. It's something called transubstantiation. It's a Catholic doctrine. Not that the, the bread actually really becomes flesh. It's not some cannibalistic thing when we take communion. But Catholics believe there's a very real presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. Zwingli says, no, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remembrance service. We're remembering the Lord's death. Jesus is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's not in the bread. Luther says, oh, if you take Jesus out of the bread, you've got nothing. So, so they have this kind of debate and they end not really uh, coming to a conclusion. Uh, in later years, Luther continues with his writings. I said he's a prodigious writer. Uh, he actually gets married he marries uh, Catherine Van Bora in 1523. Um, priests, clerics have been married before, but Luther's marriage kind of sets the, uh, the seal of approval on this. The events of this are crazy. Ladies, guys, if you're wanting to get married, this is kind of a how not to do it. Um, there were loads of nuns and monks in monasteries and nunneries that had now been reading Luther's teaching about you don't need to be a monk and a nun, and they wanted to leave. They'd been reading Luther's teaching. But it's against the law, or it was against the law, to help monks or nuns skip the monastery. But when 12 nuns wrote to Luther asking for help, he felt compelled to do something about it. So he had a friend called Leonard Kopp, who used to deliver, who delivered barrels of herrings to the local nunnery. And in the empty returns, the empty herring barrels, he smuggled out these 12 nuns. And they promptly appeared on Luther's doorstep, because he's the one who'd said, you don't need to be in the nunnery anymore. Uh, and Luther felt compelled to find them jobs, because, again, they didn't have money, they didn't have families, they had no means of sustaining themselves. So he gets 11 of them married off or into employment, apart from the one Catherine Van Bora. He tries to pair her up with someone, and she says, I'd actually rather marry Luther than marry this bloke, which Luther thinks is incredibly funny, tells his father about it, and his father thinks, that's a really good idea, you should get married. <laughs> and eventually, Luther comes round to it and does indeed marry Catherine Van Bora. And they had a great marriage, apparently, six kids, uh, really good, good time. But in later life, Luther becomes quite ill. I don't know if it was six kids or if it was the, the stress of uh, all the debates he'd been in. Um, but in 1546, uh, and in ill health, he travels uh, home to Eisleben, the place of his birth. Uh, he preaches in the local church on the 15th of February, 14, or 1546, uh, and three days later, he dies of a stroke. If you go to uh, Germany today, you can go to the church in Wittenberg. Luther's tomb is there, just by the pulpit, the very church on which he nailed those 95 theses 500 years ago. The very man that started or was so key in the Reformation. 
And let me just, in two minutes, leave you with just three thoughts. What do we learn from all of this? Number one, God works through imperfect men and women. If Luther shows us anything, it's he is imperfect. We can often look at leaders, elders, and say, well, obviously God works through them because they're perfect. Luther was a crazy guy. He disagreed with most people that wanted to come on side with him, but God used him. Secondly, God brings continual revelation to the church. The, the story of the Reformation doesn't end with Luther. There were men that came after, there were men that had gone before. God is constantly bringing revelation to his church. And if we at any time think we have arrived, we have got it sorted, then God will open our eyes and a new generation will come on and say, no, we go further. But thirdly, and most importantly, through God, we change nations. 500 years ago, Europe was set alight by the teachings of Luther and Zwingli. Even this year, we're asking the question, has God forgotten Europe? I think the answer to that is no. And I'm sure we are all praying that 500 years after that first Reformation, God would set Europe alight again with his truths and with his words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Martin Luther. Thank you even more, Lord, for revealing your truth to us. Thank you for showing us that we are on a journey with you. And if we trust you, if we open ourselves up to you, you will show us in even greater and more wonderful measure uh, who you are. Thank you, Father. Just bless us now uh, as we close. Amen. Amen. Amen.